0: My starting point for this morning's reflection is, is this. God is not who you think he is. In fact, God isn't he. Perhaps to some of you that's a, a self-given, but for many others that might not be. Or perhaps, as Genesis says, if male and female are created in the image of God, you might say that God contains the fullness of both the masculine and the feminine, or, or simply transcends are constructed binaries altogether. For what do we make of the God who is one and yet speaks of oneself in the plural as Genesis does? Did you catch that? We we so easily look over that. Let us make humankind in our image. In fact, one of the earliest and most central names for God in the Bible is Elohim, which is a plural noun that is used singularly. Which is to say that the God who creates the heavens and the earth and blesses it all, calling everything good, uses they, them pronouns. No, God is not what our world, and unfortunately too many of our churches, have made God out to be. God is not the angry, distant, moral scorekeeper, keeping track of whether or not you've done enough good things to get in the good place when you die, or at least enough good things to outweigh the bad ones, right? God is not a supernatural Santa Claus, an old white man with flowing beard handing out cosmic lottery tickets to those who pray the right prayer or attend the right church or say any of the right words. For far too long, our default and predominant image of God shaped and passed on over thousands of years has been some variation of a king who rules over the world and sits on his great and glorious throne. A king who sees all things, judges all things. And in fact, in time, this image of the great patriarch, we might call it, was conflated with Aristotle's unmoved mover, and God became imagined as a distant, unemotional, uninvolved figure. right? Indeed, a hierarchical God, a self-made, uh, autonomous one, a self without need of any other, above, apart from creation. And I start here this morning as, as an invitation to open ourselves to the ways in which we, as Christians in our world, how we have made God over in our image and the destructive implications that it has had for us in our world. And here's the kicker, as I thought about that this week, unfortunately, this image of God, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, is operative even for those of us who would say we don't believe in it, right? Even for those of us who don't intentionally believe in this God, he is still there still in our imagination, haunting us from the shadows. The life of God, Aristotle said, must be like the very best of human lives. Or to quote the great great feminist theologian Elizabeth Johnson, the symbol of God functions. Which is to say, how we imagine God will ultimately influence and shape what we imagine to be the highest good on earth what we strive to emulate, to reflect in our own relationships and in our own world, right? Be like Christ, put on Christ, right? How we think and imagine God matters. For Aristotle and some theologians, God must be the unmoved, uh, must be unmoved by creation and what happens here. From, you know, the ecstatic joys we talked about earlier to the great sufferings, God must be unmoved I love this quote. Because the value of a thought depends on the value of what it is a thought of. And so if God were thinking of anything other than himself, he would somehow be degraded. So he, and the imperial God is always he, right? He must only be thinking of himself, the supreme being, and his life is a thinking of thinking. Before we get lost too far in that, it doesn't take It doesn't take too much imagination here to connect how this image of God also reified and deepened and entrenched our world's ideas or ideals of masculinity, right? As man as the head, the ruler, thinking elevated above emotion, men as removed from, refusing to engage in the complicated realm of emotions, except perhaps to shut them down. twisting of Genesis 1 too many churches and theologians have effectively said yes men and women are created in the image of God it's just that man bears a little bit closer resemblance to his father The, the eminent 20th century Jewish rabbi and philosopher Martin Buber once said that the word God is the most heavy laden of all human words none has become so soiled so mutilated. Just for this reason, I may not abandon it. Just for this reason, I may not abandon it. In Richard Rohr's book on the Trinity, whose whose title I stole for my sermon, so if you want to read more about this, I encourage his book by the same title. He writes, I'm convinced that beneath the ugly manifestations of our present evils, from political corruption, to ecological devastation, warring against one another, hating each other based on race, gender, religion, or sexual orientation. Beneath all of this, the greatest dis-ease facing humanity right now is our profound and painful sense of disconnection. Disconnection from God, he says, certainly, but also from ourselves, from our bodies, from each other, and from our wider world. And he says, this fourfold isolation is plunging us, as a culture, as a species, into increasingly destructive behavior, for no real relationship can be nurtured, can be honored, can be sustained within this model of being, of the unmoved mover, of the great patriarch, right? which makes it one of the most fundamental challenges facing us today. As much as we might want to leave God and all talk of God behind, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it's not possible because it's there regardless of whether we want to engage in it or not. And it's shaping our world. As much as we might want to keep God out of politics and the social realm, keep God within the walls of a sanctuary or within our own private rooms, it isn't possible. As odd as it might sound, given everything that I've said this morning then, I believe that that one image, one of many, more on that next week, but one image of God that can help us move toward a hopeful new future is actually one of Christianity's most ancient and uh, foundational ones, the Trinity, right? I know it seems on the surface, the focus of it, right? So much emphasis has been given to this impossible mathematical formula at the heart of our faith. Somehow, God is emphatically one, and yet, make no mistake about it, also a multiplicity. Three. God isn't one, then? No. God is perfectly one, but also not exactly one. And God is not exactly three, but, but yes, God is three. So two disclaimers as we get going this morning in this direction, because I know that this room is full uh, of skeptics, which I honor and love, by the way, that's just fine with me. But first, too much theology has placed been placed in this realm of abstract philosophy, right? Like doctrines, dogmas, you just put it at a bullet point and confess it, and that's That's that. That's all you need to do. But the Trinity is not a paradoxical, mathematical formula to be worked out, nor is it an abstract doctrine to be confessed. At the heart, it is something else altogether. Second, rather than starting here, or as I mentioned earlier, with the question of, well, yeah, but there's still, if Jesus is somehow a part of this, and do I really believe that Jesus was God, and does that mean I believe in a virgin birth, and how do we is that really possible and then if that's not possible how do we get to the trinity And instead of all of that again those are all good and legitimate we can circle around that another day but instead of starting there and saying therefore I can't believe there's nothing in this trinity nothing in this God thing for me rather than starting there I think it's most helpful to place uh, to center this question by returning to the fact that our thinking of God is ultimately an attempt to say something about our own highest ideals, for our own lives, but also for the world. And if you return to the historical context, the matrix in which those early Christians arrived at this concept of Trinity, what they were grappling with in a world of increasing diversity, cultural mixing, was this question, uh, was this main emphasis, God is relationship, being is fundamentally relational, they were trying to insist, and they were trying to grapple with diversity within unity. Things that I think our world is still trying to figure out. And so the Trinity becomes this uniquely Christian way of grappling with that fundamentally interrelatedness, uh, the interrelated reality of all creation and the challenges around how to build community, how to build a world that seeks the common good, seeks a common goal, while also honoring our diversity and our difference. For within the Trinity, they emphasize, our three unique and distinct persons who are also somehow perfectly one. Artists have long taken this literary image of three in one and visualized it as both a a circle dance or as communing around a table. And from these, what we arrive at is a God is an invitation for each and all of us that resists the notion of being an autonomous, self-made individual separate from others. We are already in relation to everyone and everything else including that which has gone before us and that which will come after us. And so the question before us as we figure out our own lives is not will we choose to be in relationship but what kind of relationship, what effects is our action or inaction having on others? It is not does our nation's beginning so long ago continue to shape us today for the better or worse but rather how? Like any authentic relationship, the Trinity also presents a way of knowing and being that is fundamentally involved, fundamentally engaged, participatory, like love, right? There is no way to a real knowledge apart from participating in that flow, apart from giving yourself to it. You can pontificate about it, but until you've actually given yourself to it, you don't know anything about what it really is. So, too, we are called into a deep-knowing, born-of connection rather than mere abstract ideas formed in an armchair at a safe distance, right, from the messiness of life. We are called to get involved with one another. Fundamental to relationship, to learning and growing in and through relationship, is vulnerability. It is a recognition that our boundaries, as much as we might want to set them as walls, concrete walls or big fences, our boundaries are permeable. And that we are changed, we are affected by the action or inaction of others. We are shaped by what is offered and what is withheld. And So to say that God is perfect relationship, perfect community beyond a binary, beyond a duality beyond two instead of an unmoved mover is to recognize that we need each other and thus to challenge us to think seriously about what is needed in order for real relationship or a set of relationships, a community to flourish. It is to recognize that in order for the whole to flourish, the community, each and all of its parts, each person must flourish also which is to say that the vulnerability that results in a profound openness to one another in community must be met with profound mutuality. Again, there are boundaries between persons in the Trinity and in our human relationships that must be honored. Differences remain. Unique identities are honored as the very means by which we can say we are one in any meaningful way. And it's from this, this sort of notion of divine interrelatedness that led Dr. King in his letter from a Birmingham jail to emphasize that we are all inextricably interwoven in a single garment of destiny. That whatever happens to one, wherever it might be across the world, indirectly happens to me, affects me, affects all of us, everywhere. With the triune God as our starting point, this becomes our logical conclusion, in contrast, again, with the great fourfold disconnection that I spoke of earlier. For to refuse to honor my connection to those who are suffering, is to refuse my connection to God. They are one and the same. To disregard bills passed across the country to silence gay people or to erase transgender or non-binary people is to disregard God. It's also, it also means that the, the giving and receiving that is a fundamental part of relationship, the ebb and flow must flow in both directions. Which is to say, we are not to hoard things for ourselves. And yet, no one needs to be a martyr on behalf of everyone else, only extending themselves, only ever giving themselves away, having no boundaries, being walked on. Somehow there is this giving and receiving, this honoring of one's own boundaries, one's own needs, and a giving to others. In our world where loneliness has been deemed an epidemic, and where disconnection fuels our capacity to disregard, to trust in this notion of God, is to offer ourselves to it, and to open us to a future with hope. No, the Trinity isn't an abstract dogma that we must confess with our lips. It is a divine dance. It is a movement. It is a rhythm. It is a way of being in the world that we are called to honor and to participate in with our whole lives. It's a movement beyond duality, beyond patriarchy, beyond domination. It's a living within the paradox of restlessness and yet contentment, of nurturing the body, and yet letting our ego identity fall away, of affirming our unity and yet honoring our diversity. This morning, I want to leave you with with this. I want to invite you to look at the, the image on your bulletin covers. The image that was placed there this week was created by the contemporary iconographer, the artist Kelly Lattimore. It's a, a modern interpretation of a 15th century icon created by the Russian artist Andrei Rublev, which he created during a time when Russia was being torn apart by, by war and violence. And there's a story told that one artist became a follower of Jesus, put their trust in this image of God and what it calls us to, just from gazing at Rublev's icon, exclaiming, if that is the nature of God, then I'm a believer. This morning, I invite you to sit with Kelly's icon of the Trinity. Take in the symbols, the imagery present, the invitation at the heart of it, and ask yourself, what might it mean for you to be a believer in such a divine dance and to give yourself to it? What might happen if we as a community gave ourselves to this divine movement? As in Kelly's picture, may we take the hands that are outstretched to us and dare to move beyond where we've been for our healing and transformation, for the healing and transformation of all the world. Amen.